Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology, Instagram at Brew Theology, Facebook, and at our website, brewtheology.org. Today's episode brings much of the conversation from the afternoon session of the May 2019 Aletruist event. You'll hear from leaders from four faith traditions, Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity. In fact, there is so much to share from this event. Expect a follow-up episode featuring a lively panel discussion. Today you'll hear from Craig Brook, co-director of The Table, Urban Farm and Church, Building Community and Growing and Distributing Organic Food. Dilpreet Jamun, chairman of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado and president of the Colorado Six, speaking on Sikhism. Vednanda, founder of the Vednanda Center for International and Comparative Law at the University of Denver, speaking on Hinduism. And Diana Thompson, head of Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple and reverend of Jodo Sinshu Temple. Let's join Ryan, Janelle, and their guests at Ale Truist, May 2019, the afternoon session. Uh, this individual is a friend of mine, a very dear friend. We've been friends for over five years. He's a neighbor, he's a brother, and he is a pastor of the Urban Table Gardening Community, and his name is Craig Brook. So Craig and I, we have kids that are around the same age, and we eat lunch about once a week together, and we do, we, yeah, we've talked about just about everything in life together. Here's a cool thing about Craig and I that I always like to mention. Craig's been on a podcast before, which is a really good podcast. Dan was on that podcast with us, too. Dan, are you, where are you at, Dan? Dan's gone. Uh, we, we probably disagree theologically about a lot of things, and yet we agree functionally, fundamentally, uh, about ideologically how we treat the world. And I think that what Craig and his wife and the community of the table are doing is not only good for the world, I think it's, it's also what the world could look like down the road when people actually get their heads out of the sand. So, Craig, sand, this, it's, not, it's not all sand. Sometimes it's soil. But this, this guy's got his hands in the garden all the time. So, Craig Brook, everybody. Wow, oh, thank, thank you. Uh, hands, hands in the garden and hands on a beer most of the time. Yes. Did I hear an amen? <laughs> hey, good. Uh, so yeah, my name is Craig Brook. Thanks, Ryan, for that introduction. Um, I, what The Table is the organization that I represent, and it's a hybrid. Um, so eight years ago, my wife Janine and I moved here to Denver from New Jersey. I was serving an established church in a suburban New York City and quit my job to come here to start something out of the ordinary, outside the box. And what we developed was... Uh, Garden Church, I guess you could say. So there are two organizations, the Table Urban Farm, the Table Community Church, uh, and the, what makes up the Table Urban Farm is a network of gardens, mostly in this neighborhood, the Platte Park neighborhood. And we grow as much food as we possibly can on small plots that we borrow from our neighbors. Uh, and if you came in on Iowa Street, one of those plots is right out here on the uh, north side of the church here. So this is one of 15 garden plots that we grow food in. And all the food that we grow, we donate back to the public. And um, our goal is um, to help alleviate the hunger problem in Denver, because there actually is one. Um, one in six kids is what they call food insecure in Denver, which means they either don't have access to local healthy food, or they don't have the money to actually buy the best local food. And 
um, food is actually very expensive, the best kind of food. So uh, we do our best to create access uh, on, an, on an easy basis. So we support a food bank, but we also do something called the Veggie Bike, which we partner with local businesses and park it and hand out food to whoever walks by. Um, and so over the course of eight years, uh, we've donated, grown and donated over 20,000 pounds of food and given it back to our neighborhood. So yes, thank you, yeah. Did you have a question? Okay, two questions. Do you focus on the food deserts here in the, in, in the metropolitan area? We do. So just west of here, across Broadway. So what the Platte Park neighborhood, if, if any of you are from this neighborhood, recognize that Platte Park is an upper middle class or maybe even upper class neighborhood. Uh, so we partner with people here who have resources to grow the food, and then we invite them to participate as we donate it to folks that need it. So just across Broadway, Ruby Hill, Overland, um, the neighborhood's less than a mile away from here, uh, what, which are what we call food deserts, which means they're, less, they're, they're more than a mile away from a fresh food market. So we try to target folks, uh, so we park often along Broadway uh, where the urban travelers uh, go up and down Broadway to find uh, food. And the, the beautiful thing about raw vegetables is uh, you don't have to cook them to appreciate them. So you can eat them right off of the, uh, off the truck. And second question? was is that do you take donations from other churches? Uh, absolutely. You're talking about food or money? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All of the above. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I appreciate that question. We are, people always ask us, so this is your full-time job? And I say, yes, it is. And then in this neighborhood especially, people say, mm, how do you make that work? And so, uh, a lot of our work is also fundraising. So applying for public funding, but also finding supporters that are willing to support us in the work that we're doing. Uh, because in addition to growing food, we're also about building community. So uh, the work that Ryan has done and Janelle here with Brew Theology fits very much along the lines of what we do at the table. We wanna bring people around the table, around the grace of Jesus. I'm a Christian pastor, um, but we want to give people a tangible taste yeah, pun intended, tangible taste of what grace actually is, uh, is like in their local community. So that's what the table is about. Uh, we have a table over here for the table. Um, and you'll notice that on the table, the thing standing up there is, it says it's more than a yard garden. Find grace among neighbors at denvertable.org. Um, we have one of those identifying signs in each of our gardens so people see them around the neighborhood and go, what is this thing? Um, tell me more. And so we oftentimes get emails from people or people will post on social media like, hey, I found this really great garden in our neighborhood and I started harvesting. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're, <laughs> we're, we're going to use that. It's going to go back to the community, but please don't help yourselves. Um, we gather all of the food from all the gardens and, and donate it back. So on the table over there are some social media cards. So if you want to figure out how to get connected with us, feel free to take a card. Um, we've got some volunteer opportunities coming up. The month of May is especially busy because it's planting season. So I can think of May 8, May 15, May 16, May 19. Uh, we have at least one, sometimes two volunteer opportunities on all of those dates. So if you want to get your hands in the dirt, mostly in the neighborhood, but we do have some gardens outside of the neighborhood, please Please sign up. There's a meetup. I know y'all are familiar with meetup because Brew Theology thrives on over a thousand people. Did you know that? Or a thousand people on the Brew Theology meetup, which is amazing. Um, and then there are also some freebies. So we got some salad.
tongs over there. They're made out of bamboo, so help yourself. We've got many, so if they're gone, there's a bucket under the table with a whole bunch of them in there. And um, just appreciate y'all and your, um, your love for community and your love for interfaith dialogue um, and your love for one another. And I hope that you enjoyed the dinner as well. Um, that's all. Thanks, Craig. All right, so as we get started, we're gonna have a little change in the program and we're gonna start with Sikhism. And so Dilpreet Jammu is gonna come and share with us. He's the president of Colorado Sikh and also the president of the board of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. And um, he was such a joy when he came and shared with us at Brew Theology and um, just introduced us to a religion that a lot of us didn't know about and helped us just gain a wider view of the world. So I'm really thankful for his presence here. So Dilpreet, if you'd like to join us. And we will be doing a panel again at the end of these three speakers. So please feel free to collect questions on your tables. Thank you very much, Janelle. So um, for those of you who are wondering, I always dress up on a Saturday. <laughs> I always wear a tie. And, and I, I got to share with you, um, I didn't tell Ryan this yet, but I was at another event this morning where the audience was extremely or a lot more conservative. And as I was driving here, I thought to myself, what a great country I live in, where <laughs> I can go with a whole bunch of really conservative people to a bunch of people who are probably going to be drinking and would annoy all these conservative people. So that's just the background of how I got here. So let me talk a little bit about Sikhism. Here's how I'm going to do it very quickly. Uh, how many of you uh, attended the uh, brew pub session where I spoke? Way cool. So there's a whole bunch of people who haven't attended. How many of you are new to brew pub theology? Wow, okay. I love it, lots of new people. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you, uh, and I'm gonna ask for help on the time, all right? Uh, I'm gonna give you an overview of Sikhism, uh, and the stories I'm gonna tell are about how it's lived and the philosophy behind it. That's what I'm gonna do, okay? Within Sikhism, we're a monotheistic faith. And our scripture, to the best of my knowledge, the Guru Granth Sahib, is the only scripture that begins with a number. And that number is one. Everything in the philosophy flows from that one. That's as simple as I can put it. It's all about one and oneness. And the, the, the first uh, phrase or the prayer within Sikhism describes God. I'm not even gonna go into that level of detail. We'll save that for another day. But let me get into a very, very simplistic explanation of it. Everybody here has heard the part where, you know, God is omnipotent, all-powerful, right? Omniscient, and then omnipresent, all-knowing, all, all... What that means within Sikhism, for God to be truly present everywhere, means that that divine source has to be inside of you as well. That divine is also a part of this conversation. You cannot interact with anything without interacting with the source, the creator, the divine, the energy which is there. So God does not sit up in heaven, in hell. Oh, sorry, definitely doesn't sit in hell. I'll get back to hell and sit. We'll talk about that one. 
And, and I'm trying to get the, through this very quickly without really flubbing it up for all my Christian friends and stuff. But really, um, God, if truly to be present everywhere, is truly a part of you already. And the question I often have is, get, get on that one as well, uh, is God listening? I say, yeah, absolutely. Um, the fact is, you can't have a conversation with yourself. Picture this, you're having a conversation with yourself. And how many of you notice that you start to get into an argument or something with yourself? Have you ever noticed that one? Well, the question I have for you is, how can you have a conversation with yourself if there's not another self present with that conversation? So you have a higher level of consciousness and a lower level of consciousness, and really the source, the creator, because you've been given this brain, this all-powerful brain, is a part of you already. And so this caused a, a, a bunch of consternation in the long term. So let me tell you, if I say to you that God is already present within you and inside you and is a part of that conversation, it goes from there and it, it happens within Sikhism, we do not have a priestly class. We do not have ministers. We don't have any of that. And the reason is very simple. I don't need another person to speak for me or to get into that relationship with the source. It is my job to develop that personal relationship with the divine because that divine is already a part. And this then gets into all this part about the ego. And I'm so glad, by the way, thanks Janelle for pulling this together. I knew I'd have my guideline to talk to and I, I was like, hey, I don't need to prepare for this one. I got these, they're gonna help me. The fact is that you, know, uh, you as an individual already have the power within you and you have to just recognize that that source, the divine is there, okay? I'm gonna leave it at that. But what it does is once you take that step, then the next part of oneness becomes uh, equality. We are all part of one human race. And so caste, creed, color, none of that stuff matters. Uh, gender does not matter, I'll talk to that specifically. Uh, gender orientation does not matter. I know this is gonna annoy any conservatives in this room. Uh, being a part of a political party doesn't matter, okay? There's a lot of things that do not matter because you are a human being. So from a Sikhism point of view, if you are a human being and you are suffering, Part of my job is to take care of it and to take care of you. So that whole aspect of social justice and things, you'll start seeing it in terms of the themes and, and the way that I as a Sikh live my life. And many Sikhs actually do many of the things that I do, okay? It is, I, I'm glad to say this, we are probably the only faith, uh, uh, modern faith that I've looked at that states that men and women are equal that was codified right from the start. It's found in our scriptures. It is a fact that in, in our belief structure, we believe that women can lead services and have, uh, uh, women are equal in terms of the spiritual aspect as well as anything temporal. So I, I tell my daughter, I got two daughters, and I tell them, I said, you can be whatever you wanna be. Just go work your tush off, that's how it works. Very simple, okay? And that brings me to some of the other parts of the philosophy, which is the entire aspect of sharing with others. All right. That brings me to the concept of Lunger. How many, um, I know a couple of you have heard the concept of Lunger before. I'm just gonna jump right into it. Lunger rhymes with the hunger. 
and it is a free community kitchen that is found at every sick house of worship. Uh, at the larger ones, they run seven by 24. The Lunger was put in place and was institutionalized at a very early uh, formation of our faith, and it was there for purposes of equality. You will sit with people who you have never met. Your caste doesn't matter, your creed, none of that stuff matters. And the Lunger will serve, uh, in modern day times now, uh, the sick press has done the analysis, and their estimate is that every single day, the sick community uh, does about six and a half million free meals. That works out to 2.2 billion meals every single year. And that is all done through donations, that is all done through the word seva, and that is all about generating equality, taking care of hunger, making sure that people are taken care of. And, and the way I like to put it is, it, it, it's pretty tough to think about God if you've got an empty tummy. Okay, so the entire spiritual aspect, the equality aspect, all of that comes from, uh, from the, the Lunger, and it's a part of the philosophy. Now that brings me to one more topic I'm gonna talk about, and I'm gonna try and keep it under 10 minutes, because by the way, I enjoyed that uh, Q&A format, I've always enjoyed that. Uh, the last aspect is the service and the seva. Okay, uh, seva uh, means service, but he here's the interesting thing. Uh, in our faith tradition, we have what's known as giving as well. It's called daswan, meaning you give 10%. And no one's ever clarified for me, by the way, uh, whether it's 10% gross or net. <laughs> and, and I'm gonna go even one step further because there's taxation and I'm looking for rationalization, so I'm with you on this one, right? I mean, <laughs> but, but really, it is about giving back to the community in terms of seva. Because uh, you have wealth, you have created wealth, it is, through grace that you are given opportunities. And now, what, are you, what do you give back to your community? So here's the neat thing about Seba and the aspect that I really like. Seba is about engaging with the service. It is not about tossing alms to the poor, and I'll use that example. It's not about tossing food over, uh, over the fence to the poor person, because that is a, uh, th that becomes a relationship where you are uh, elevating your level of power relative to the, to the individual. Seva is about getting into the trenches. So Seva is found at the Gurdwaras, it's found in other places where you get into the trenches and you are there to support the community and to support the people who are around you and, and build community, okay? So um, we got the God part taken care of, okay? Uh, we got the service part taken care of. We got the lunger, we got no priests, we got equality for women and gender equality, you got all that stuff. The questions that often pops up is, uh, how do I become one with the source? So I, I, earlier I was joking about heaven and hell, but here's the serious part of it. Uh, within the Sikh tradition, there are countless heavens and countless hells. Countless heavens and countless hells. So in your journey through life, they are all part of temporary states. And I, I've used this example before. I'll use it, and you've all been there, and that's why it's gonna resonate. You go to a show, a movie, whatever. You're there with a friend. Your friend is miserable. You're really having a good time. One of you's in heaven, the other person's in hell. And it is a temporary state. And so the same is true in terms of our life journey as we're going through. We are all in part, uh, we are always going through ups and downs, 
suffering and so on, and these are all temporary states. Within Sikhism, there is no eternal damnation because it is onward, it's always a spiritual journey. And so there's plenty of room, and the, and the way I like to put it is the source, the creator, if that source is all-knowing, then he already knows, he or she already knows what you're doing. You don't need to worry about it, okay? And is already aware of what you are or what you are not, to, to put it that way, okay? So uh, that sums up everything I want to say about Sikhism for now, and I'll be happy to take questions. I believe I'm giving back three or four minutes. So on to the next speaker. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, so for the t-shirt, how many million meals do they make in a year? Six. Who said that? I did six. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, good job. It's Kelly. Um, before I introduce our next speaker, I just wanna make sure to say thank you to all of the brew theologians who have been helping make this event happen. Uh, people that showed up yesterday to set up, showed up today, this morning to get us going, will help us with the quick teardown. So I'd like to introduce our next speaker, um, Ved Nanda, who is the founder of the Ved Nanda Center for International and Comparative Law. He teaches at University of Denver, DU Law School, and he's going to share with us about Hinduism. Thank you for coming. Dilpreet has uh, set a good example, so I won't take more than 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> During lunch, one of our colleagues here, Stanley Harsh, he came to me and he said, you're going to talk about Hinduism? And I said, yes. And he said, how can you? He didn't say that. But uh, he said, it's such a complex religion. And uh, he is a former diplomat. He has his house in Bali. And uh, how many of you have been to Bali? Anybody? Wonderful. There, there's another one behind you. And three of us. And Bali is absolutely gorgeous, beautiful. Do go there if you have the opportunity to. And uh, it is a complex religion. And uh, to talk about it in 10 minutes, I can say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and Ryan began, began by saying namaste. And that is the salutation that Hindus have. And that namaste simply means the divinity in me greets the divinity in you. And I'm bowing to the divinity in you through divinity in me. And meaning thereby that all human beings, they are part of that divine. And so Hinduism does not have a, any feeling and any thinking about sin or evil. And so God is great. We have uh, people who have been to a temple, Hindu temple. How many of you have been to a Hindu temple? Many of you. And you have seen there are many, many deities there. And at some at time, people talk about Hinduism as a religion that is worshipping idols. Because these are deities. They have got uh, faces. 
they look like human beings. And the point simply is that for Hinduism, all those deities are simply manifestation of God. And in different ways, you and I may be able to be able to think about something that's abstract and can relate to it. Dilpreet said, everybody said, God is omnipresent, omniscient, and all those wonderful things everywhere, and in you, in me. But at the same time, when you think about God and relate to it, sometimes that all-pervasive, all, everywhere, you can't relate to it. But we can relate to something that we can recognize. And so those deities simply tell you about the qualities that a person has, and God has all those qualities. So that is one thing that I thought I might mention to you. About Hinduism, a couple other things that I should say, because many times you hear that there is a caste system, and that caste system is very rigid, and that caste system is the one where there are people who absolutely have no way to have their own say in the world. And, and uh, that caste system today still is oppressive, is present, not in cities, but in many rural areas, you go around and still you find that people who are called Dalits or who are people untouchables and they are not treated well. But I simply want you to know that as you go back in Hindu scriptures and Hindu thought, because it's a religion that is 10,000 years old, oldest religion. It has got absolutely nobody who founded it. It has no dogma. It has got, um, I uh, sent a note to Ryan and said uh, there are no tenets, or basic tenets. And there was a question mark, that question mark didn't come. But the point simply is that there are many people who feel that Hinduism simply is a way of life. It has got no founder, it has got no book, it has not got simply one or two principles, it has got plenty of them. People who believe in God, people who don't believe in God, people who believe in an abstract God, people who believe in a God that is creator, a God that is maintains, a God that destroys, and that is the kind of trinity in Hinduism that you can see. Let me say, take a couple more ideas about Hinduism, and then I'll simply, uh, later on, any question that you might have, uh, I'll answer them. In Hinduism, they feel that there are four kind of aims of life. It is dharma, earth, kam, moksha. The salvation of Hindu, any person. And here comes reincarnation. Here comes cause and effect. And uh, you know, you uh, walk around and my colleague, uh, if he's not looking into it, and there is a door and knocks the head against it. And he said, oh, karma. So this is my bad karma that has come. And the point simply is that Hinduism does believe that there is cause and effect. And every cause is going to have an effect. And over a period of many lives, probably, 
that the salvation, I, I have divinity, part of that divine, but to reach him, I am not the one who is simply fatalist. What I do, what I think, it's going to have an effect. And that is how Hinduism believes that over many, many lives probably, finally you have to reach moksha. And that is the salvation finally reaching God. And then there are dharma, it is your duty, and uh, living, living a good life. And that is really where many people feel that in Hinduism there are no basic tenets because it's just simply way of life and asking people to live a good life, not even a congregational religion. There are temples, beautiful temples, you go there, but at the same time, most of the people, they have got a small temple at home and they are the ones who take care of their own worshiping in their own home. That is Hinduism as it is. Now, one thing that I want to mention to you, and that is that Hinduism believes not a slogan, not a dogma, but it says, Sarve Bhavantu Sukhina, Sarve Santu Niramaya. And that is that the entire human race is one family, Vasudev Kutumbakam. And in that family, if there is one person who is sick, the entire family grieves. One person is happy, all of us are happy. And then here, there is, at the present time, there are extremists in Hinduism also, as in many religions, and over a period of 10,000 years, there have been so many different glosses, so many different interpretations, and therefore, when you think about Hinduism, and you listen to people about Hinduism, there are many different ways that they might describe it. So, what does that mean that the entire human race is one family? What it simply means is that when there are differences, and here we talk about diversity, that you do not simply say that I tolerate differences. Toleration simply means that I'm superior to you, I'm tolerating you. And more than a hundred years ago, one of the sages from India, Swami Vivekananda came to Chicago and uh, starting talking about it and he said, brothers and sisters, and then you know people were not at that time accustomed to that kind of uh, salutation. And they were startled. And he said, I feel that way. You're all my brothers and sisters. And then here, then the point simply is that he said, no toleration, acceptance. Not simply acceptance, but respect. Respect for all differences. And that is where Hinduism feels very, very strongly that sarve bhavantu sukhina, sarve santu niramaya. That all around the world should prosper. Everybody should be happy. Differences are to be celebrated. Differences are not to be the reason for discrimination and goodbye. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, and our last speaker before our panel is Diana Thompson, and she's one of us in a special way. 
Um, Diana has been coming to Brew Theology almost at least two years, almost three. And we, we didn't know how amazing she was at first because she didn't tell us. She just shared beer with us and met at the table with us. So she, we, I want you to know how much we love her and appreciate her presence. And um, she probably wouldn't tell you, but I will because that's my job. Um, she is the head minister of the Jodo Shinshu Buddhist Temple here in Denver and is head of Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple. And uh, I see the spirit of her work and ministry every time I get to hang out with her. So I hope you will enjoy her presentation. Okay, I feel a lot of pressure on me now because <laughs> that, was, that was a really solid introduction. Thank you, Chanel. And also thank you to Dilpreet because I was supposed to go first, but I didn't feel warmed up enough. So thank you for taking that on. Um, I'm sorry, I thought you were being very gracious to me. <laughs> and I said, no, I won't. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. I was honoring you by letting you go first. <laughs> so, glad we got that all cleared up, guys. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm glad that Chanel printed up all these things. I like that all of us wrote these but have to read off our own pages to discuss our traditions. Um, I, as Chanel said, represent the Jodo Shinshu Buddhist tradition. So... Um, I mean, I'm educated in all forms of Buddhism, but in general, that is where I will speak from. Um, I have a little bit of the 101, obviously, down on the pages. So specifically, what I wanted to talk about was kind of um, the idea of altruism within Buddhism. So um, as with Hinduism, we have a few things that are written down, but largely... Buddhists tend to see the world in shades of gray. So it would be very rare, unless you are on a very specific path to enlightenment, to see uh, a list of do's and don'ts within Buddhism, a list of good and bad within Buddhism, because everything's kind of relative. We look specifically at the situation, and maybe we might think it is wrong, but since everything is a product of our own minds and our own experiences, we can never say for sure what is 100% right, 100% wrong, because we don't know the full situation. So um, to be sort of altruistic within Buddhism, um, that's kind of up to the individual, because we have a much easier time being sort of altruistic and kind and compassionate to people that we know or people that share our same beliefs and understandings as opposed to doing things like selfless giving to people that we don't know or maybe don't even like. So um, for Buddhists, when we talk about that, we talk about um, the idea of compassion, but there's a difference there in the large compassion that it was contained within fully enlightened beings, people who or people or beings who can be totally compassionate, totally altruistic because they have made this long commitment and they have done all of the correct practices and so they have the wisdom. But we as human beings contain only small compassion. We have the ability to be kind and to be helpful and we do have a few uh, 
maybe not specific tenets, but suggestions within our text that say that we should give to others, um, we should do our best to speak kindly and do kind things, but over all of that is the reminder that we ourselves are imperfect, and so even if we do something kind, compassionate, or we think it's altruistic, it might go real bad. And we can't control that because we control nothing outside of ourselves. So when we talk about uh, altruism in Buddhism, we try to keep in mind um, the doctrine of interdependence, that none of us exists in a vacuum, that we are all connected to everything and everyone else. And as Ved said, we have the idea of uh, karma that we anything we do or say or think has an effect somewhere. And it may not be a direct one-to-one -one kind of thing, but we're taught to sort of think about that before we speak and before we act and before we kind of do anything. However, again, with that in mind, we do try to remember too that maybe somebody was doing us a kindness and it annoyed the bejesus out of us, but they were still trying to do a kind thing, and it can go the other way too. We were trying to do a kind thing, and it went really badly, but that doesn't mean that we should stop trying to do those things and stop trying to maintain that sort of mindset of interconnectedness, that we do our best and we need to keep moving, otherwise our little link in our chain becomes very, very weak, and we can't hold others up if our link is not strong. So, was that five minutes? That's what I was going for. I was going to do the five-minute one. <laughs> so, yes, and obviously, if you have questions, we'll have the panel after that. So, thank you for having me today.